Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. One of the core questions I've been hustling over for the last decade as a meditator is how can I be great at what I do? How can I continue to be ambitious while not making myself miserable? And a question within that question is, can I push forward in a tough and disciplined way without beating myself up so much? I think a lot of people believe that the only reason we're successful is because we liberally imply uh, apply what I call the internal cattle prod or my dad had an expression the the price of security is insecurity you know and I still as I said before I still believe that a certain amount of suffering and plotting and planning and hand-wringing is necessary but it's become increasingly obvious to me even in the last year really that the amount of uh, self-inflicted pain can go way down, and and you continue, you can continue to be not only just as good as you were before, but even better. And a key figure in really establishing scientific evidence behind this argument is our guest this week. Her name is Kristen Neff. She's an associate professor at the University of Texas at Austin, longtime practitioner in the insight meditation tradition, and she has really been the prime mover in the scientific research around something called self-compassion. We talk a lot in this episode about what blocks people from practicing self-compassion, especially for people like me who find it sort of annoyingly syrupy. She talks a lot about the scientific evidence. She talks about the difference between self-compassion and self-esteem and how understanding that can make a key difference and why it's saner to employ a self-compassionate strategy with yourself, especially e- even in a, a highly competitive career such as the one or two that I've chosen as opposed to just constantly kicking your own butt. I want to say before we dive in that if you're interested in actually practicing this stuff, We've got a number of self-compassion-focused meditations up on the 10% Happier app. We also have a whole course on self-compassion and other compassion uh, led by Sharon Salzberg. It's called 10% Nicer. That's up on, on the app. And then Joseph Goldstein has a whole course based on compassion practices all up on the app. And if you haven't checked out the app, um, you can always do so. You can do so at any time, and there's a seven-day free trial. It's great stuff. Really proud of the work that's being done on the app and really, really proud to bring you Kristen Neff. So here we go. Nice to see you. Thank you for doing this. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while, actually, because I'm actually writing a book about kindness right now, and I want to do a chapter about self-compassion. So you are are the leading expert. So before we get to self-compassion, though, I I want to hear how you got interested in meditation in the first place. Right. So uh, it was my last year of graduate school. I was finishing up my PhD at Berkeley. And I basically, my life was a mess, right? I had gotten out of a divorce. It was a very messy divorce. I was feeling a lot of shame. Um, and I was also feeling a lot of stress. Not so much about what I finished my PhD, but more after seven years of my life when I get a job. <laughs> the job market was really tight. And so I thought, you know, well, 
I've heard that meditation is is good for stress, and it was Berkeley. So right down the street from me was a meditation group. Um, so I, I was lucky. The Probably very, right down every street. Right down every group, street, yeah. yeah, in Berkeley. So that you know, on every corner. Um, but luckily, the one I chose to go to, um, the woman leaving the group, it was actually a Thich Nhat Han sangha. Um, Should I and, say a little bit about who he is, just for the few? People? Well, yeah, I mean. I, it's up to you. I don't really practice in his. Okay. The reason it's important is because some meditation teachers, mindfulness meditation teachers, wouldn't necessarily talk about self compassion. Uh, but Thich Nhat Hanh, one thing that's unique about him is he's really emphasizes the heart qualities of practice. Especially since he's a Vietnamese Zen master, and Zen doesn't talk a lot about compassion. Full stop. As as I understand, right? It. But he does yeah. in particular, right? And so I started in his tradition. Um, and the very the very first night I went, the woman talked about having compassion for yourself, that you needed to actively cultivate compassion for yourself as well as others. And um, so I was also learning mindfulness, but because my life was such a mess, because I was such a mess, you know, almost immediately I saw the difference it made when I turned toward myself with this kind of kind, warm, supportive attitude. I just saw my own experience. It really made a difference. So, And then I started practicing more in the insight meditation tradition, I think because I'm a scientist, it, it just was a little more compatible with my um, way of approaching things. But with people like Jack Cornfield, The Path with Heart, Sharon Salzberg, Loving Kindness. So I was, always re- I was always really drawn to the integration of, you might say, the spaciousness of mindfulness with the heart-opening qualities of compassion. And I was, I was fortunate because it was there at my practice from the very beginning, and that was about 20 years ago. And let me just jump so, in and define terms for people because yeah, okay. some people – Yes. I, I just never know. We have a lot of experienced right. meditators who listen yes. but for new folks who are coming every week. Yes. So in, once you start to meditate, there are lots of ways to meditate. There are lots of ways to meditate. And within yeah. Buddhism, there are, I would say, at least two big skills we're trying to teach. Yeah. One is mindfulness, which yes. is – Put simply, the ability not to be yanked around by your emotions. Yes, like that. Yeah. The other is compassion, or yeah. if you're if you're afraid, as I am, of gooey words, you can just retranslate that into friendliness. Just friendliness, kind of a exactly a, a cooler, calmer, nicer attitude toward external <laughs> and internal right. phenomena. Although, can I replace the word cooler with warmer? Sure. Yes. <laughs> better. I mean, cool. As I know. Like, I know what you mean. Cool right I know now. what you mean. Yeah. Um, but you, you, fair enough. Uh, so it sounds like you pivoted from the initial Zen tradition into what's known as the insight tradition, which is just another form of Buddhist meditation. It's actually the school I've trained in. And right. you stumbled upon teachers like Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg, both of whom have written a lot about yes. mindfulness. Yes. Again, just being able to be non-judgmentally aware of stuff right. and compassion, which is adding in the not just non-judgmentally aware, but having a certain element of warmth. In the awareness, right, and so so the mindfulness is aimed at holding experience in a non-judgmental manner. So the compassion is aimed at holding the experiencer in a friendly manner. And so they have slightly different targets, and so both need to be practiced. That can actually almost appear to conflict sometimes because you accept your experience as it is, including the fact that it's painful, at the same time that you're wishing yourself well and you want to help. And so it almost forms a bit of a paradox. Actually, one of the sayings we say, like to say is we give ourselves compassion not to feel better, but because we feel bad. So you have to allow the experience to be as it is at the same time as toward the experiencer because you're friendly, because you care. You do what you can to help. So one paradox is 
since sorry, let me see if I can restate that. And I'm yeah. also thinking that there may be yet another paradox. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> uh, one paradox is you in mindfulness meditation, we are not trying to control anything. We're just yeah. trying to see things as they are. Right. See clearly. Uh, insight is yes. you know the clear yes. seeing of yes. whatever's happening, right. so that it doesn't own us. Right. Uh, um, but in in this case, uh, all, when you add in the compassion layer, you're trying to uh, notice that there's suffering there. Yes. And you're not trying to alleviate it per se. You're just sending warmth toward the suffering as it is. Right. You aren't trying to manipulate your experience because if you use compassion to try to make the pain go away, mm-hmm. it's actually just another form of resistance. Mm. So you have to fully accept the fact that this is painful, this hurts, you know, and that's the mindfulness, validating and accepting the fact that this is really painful right now. And at the same time, we give ourselves warmth and kindness, you know, I'm so sorry, it's so painful. Is there anything I can do to help and support myself in this moment, right? And so they're targeted kind of two different targets, so they have to be both held together and, you know, they say compassion and wisdom, they're two wings of a bird. We need both wings. We need to tend toward ourselves. At the same time, we accept our experience. All right. Well, I was just going to ask you how we do this. Yes. Because I think yeah. most of the listeners will understand basic mindfulness meditation. We yes. often pick the breath as our object. We yes. sit and try to feel the breath. Every uh-huh. time we get distracted, which will mm-hmm. happen a million times, yeah. we start again. Compassion meditation or self-compassion meditation mm-hmm. Involves a little bit more kind of discursive thinking, or not discursive thinking, targeted thinking, where you are sending well wishes toward yourself. And you did this little thing where you said, "I'm so sorry you're feeling this way. Is there anything I can do?" Like, and that for me, as a typical Western raised in a patriarchal system guy, think I think I'm not going to say that to myself. Right, right, right. Do I have to do that? You don't have to do it that way. You can um, you can give yourself like a. a you know, you can use, do it physically. So what we're doing is um, hmm, we're re- there's really two different safety systems. So we're activating the care safety system because as mammals, you know, when we come out of the womb, the way we feel safe is by connection with other people, right? Connection, love, warmth, that's what allows us to feel safe. And so what we're doing is we're kind of intentionally targeting the care system. And you can do it with language, but it's true that language doesn't work for everyone. Um, you can do it with physical touch. So like, you know, putting your hand on your body in a way that feels supportive. Um, you can just do it with, with friendliness. Like, hey, it's okay. You can call yourself buddy if you want. <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever works. The language is, it doesn't really matter what the language is. What matters is the attitude of caring and warmth. And that can be expressed in a lot of ways. But mindfulness, it's not intended to be a standalone practice where it's just about accepting experience completely as it is. The, the reason we practice is because we want to alleviate suffering, right? And so ironically, when we practice, we have to accept what's happening because if we don't, it's going to make things worse. But at the same time, it's really helpful. So for instance, there's some research that shows if you teach people some self-compassion before they learn mindfulness meditation, they're more likely to stick with it because what happens is, you know, the mind starts saying, oh, I can't do this. I'm so bad at this. And it starts judging. You know, we start judging ourselves. And although it's, it, it is, we want to accept that and just see them as thoughts, it really makes a difference if you give yourself some kindness. Oh, man, that, that's kind of hard. I'm, it's okay. You know, the, the friendliness, the warmth, the human connection. And I know people get confused because it's self-compassion. But compassion is inherently connected. The word compassion in the Latin means to suffer with. 
And so when you give yourself compassion, it's not really aimed at yourself. It's just opening up. You're actually becoming less self-ish or your, your focus is less on the self. And just remembering that all people are imperfect. All people suffer. It's not just me. And that's where some of the feelings of connectedness come. So connectedness and kindness and mindfulness, those three components, at least the way I think about it, make up the experience of compassion. I want to get back to literally how we do this because because yeah. Yeah, that's, that's what I've been spending the last 10 years doing. <laughs> yeah, and I can't imagine myself giving myself a hug. So, But, but before, I, before yeah. we go there, I just yeah. want to get back to it because mm-hmm. I said earlier yeah. that there was a second paradox yeah. and you just touched on it, yeah. which is – in mindfulness meditation, especially in the Buddhist tradition, yeah. one of the goals they hold out, which is very confusing for people, is that you will ultimately see through the illusion of the self. Absolutely, and, yeah. And yet here you are talking about yes. self-compassion. Yes, yeah, that's right. And so it's it's confusing. So, for instance, I was talking to one um, a Buddhist teacher. He said, he didn't even bat an eye. And he said, oh, you just mean inner compassion. If you think of it as inwardly directed compassion as opposed to just outwardly directed compassion. And of course, compassion is unidirectional inside and outside. Then it makes sense. The, the word self is like a heuristic. But you don't need an actual sense of separate self to give yourself inner compassion. Does anybody outside of academia use the word heuristic? <laughs> I mean, I love the word. It's great. I don't probably not. Basically, it's an intellectual concept. <laughs> it's, it's yeah. It's it's, it's a useful. I think of it as it's useful. It's a useful tool. But we don't have to take it very seriously. I just want to congratulate you for I think being the first person on nearly two hundred <laughs> episodes to use the word heuristic. <laughs> no, it's great. I, I'm not even teasing you. I think it's <laughs> awesome. Anyway, but yeah, there there are a lot of paradoxes. But you know, so co- going back to and I, I'm really glad you're bringing this up because um. In a way, one of the big blocks, especially for men, to practicing self-compassion, and which is a shame because it's, we know from the research it's one of the most powerful sources of strength, coping, and resilience we have available to us. One of the blocks, especially for men, is it goes against gender roles. It seems too feminine. It seems weak. It seems flowery, right? Um, or, or like just uncomfortable. Uncomfortable, yeah, because – Men especially are socialized against expressing this this type of warmth and tenderness. Even um, outwardly. Even outwardly, yeah. And even outwardly, but especially when you add the word self. I mean, isn't self a woman's magazine, for goodness sake, right? I don't know that I thought that, but I mean, I have a four-year-old. It's the first time, my first and our first yeah. and only child. I'm really tender with him, although I also yes. like roughhouse with him and, you know, yes, bite yes. his fat thighs and all that stuff. But that's the first time in my life other than maybe with cats or something, dogs, uh-huh. uh, that I've been really tender and probably with cats and dogs when nobody's looking. And right. so uh-huh. the idea, the proposition that you have already articulated here that I should say these super warm things that I would ne- I've would i never probably, other than to my son, said out loud or to hug myself, it's just hard. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, I buy it, it but it's yeah. uncomfortable. Yeah, it is. And you don't have – again, you, you find ways of doing it um, that are more comfortable, for instance. Um, so – the UT, <laughs> I work at a University of Texas at Austin. And so the Longhorn men's basketball team asked me to come in and give the guys a training. <laughs> How'd that go? Great. Because <laughs> I didn't use the word self-compassion once because it's triggering. There's no, there's no, re- the word's nothing special about the word. I talked about inner resilience and inner strength training. Oh, and so basically, so when you're out there, when you're playing, you know, what, what mental voice do you want in your head? Do you want a coach who's saying, you suck, you can't do it, you know, you're crap, you should be ashamed of yourself, I can't believe you messed that shot, 
Or do you want a coach that's saying, hey, it's okay. This is maybe what went wrong. We can work. We can do this. I'm here. I'm supportive. So kind of an encouraging, supportive, kind voice. It doesn't have to take a particular form. The, the form the kindness takes depends on what you need. And maybe what you need is not a hug. Maybe that's not going to be helpful for you. But maybe you need, you know, just kind of a little encouragement or a little understanding or just a little sense of acceptance right and and so people find their own way into self compassion but the goal is just to be a, a supportive kind encouraging helpful beneficial friendly presence right and so if you if the word friendliness works for you that yes. that works for me so for instance in, in our training program for teens we call it making friends with yourself and so you could absolutely use that metaphor and you can think what would you say to a friend so the types of things, let's say you had a friend, maybe one of your buddies come to you and say, you know, Dan, I'm really so upset this is happening or I got a cancer diagnosis or something like that. What types of things would you say to support your friend? Because that's the language that probably works for you. Then you can try to use that type of language with yourself. The language itself is not important. What's important is this uh, feeling of support, encouragement, and kindness. What if I don't like myself? Right. So, and, and, you know, in a way, um, this is what self-compassion is exactly designed to address. I mean, it's, it's helpful for everyone, but many people internalize these ideas that I'm not good enough, you know, I'm flawed, or maybe, maybe you were rejected by your parents. So, what's, first of all, what the first thing self-compassion does is tune into the pain of that. You know, wow, that's, that's kind of, that's hard, right? If you don't like yourself. And it's not about saying, it's not self-esteem. Self-esteem is I judge myself positively or I judge myself negatively. Or compared to other people. Too. And also yeah. compared to other people. And self-esteem is really contingent. It's dependent on success. If you don't succeed, your self-esteem deserts you. It's a, it's a fair weather friend. Mm. So self-compassion, this kind of more unconditionally friendly attitude, um, just says, uh, you know, hey, Everyone's imperfect. That's part of the human experience. Well, one thing we like to say is the goal of practice is simply to become a compassionate mess. <laughs> you're still a mess. You know, you do what you can, but you're a human. So by definition, you're going to be a mess. But can you hold that mess with kindness, with friendliness? Because if you don't, if you take it, if you take, it's kind of, again, another paradox. If you take that your imperfection or messiness personally, if you identify with it as who you are, then you aren't seeing the whole picture because, as, you know, when you really start getting into practice, the reality of who we are is so much bigger than this particular moment in time. And, you know, we, we identify, we reify this experience into a sense of solid self when reality, this is just what's unfolding, right? And so you might say we, we hold this unfolding mess with great compassion and kindness and friendliness and the warmth is important. And again, just going back to the physiology, we are mammals, right? And we, we've got, especially human mammals, we, we our humans are born um, the most immature. It takes 25 to 27 years for the prefrontal cortex to fully mature. And I like In my to, case, it's taken nearly <laughs> Yeah, and I, and I like to joke, it may take another five years for the kids to actually leave home. <laughs> you know, and the reason, that's because the human brain is so plastic. And it's able to, you know, change and evolve. And that, that's why we're, we, we're such slow developers. But physiologically, we needed a system in place that would prompt the, the infant or the, you know, the, the, the child 
to be safe by being taken care of by parents or people who elders who take care of them, and that would also prompt the, the parents to take care of the child. So we have a very evolved care system as part of our physiology. And so what we know, again, from the science is when you're, when you're kind to yourself, when you're friendly towards yourself, touch is one way to do it, but other ways to do it as well. You actually lower the, the cortisol levels, you reduce the sympathetic nervous reactivity, and you actually activate things like heart rate variability, um, probably oxytocin. The dots haven't been totally connected, so but most likely you're, you're increasing oxytocin. You're actually activating this physiological system that's designed to make us feel safe. The problem with not liking yourself is it's very threatening and you feel isolated. And so remembering that, hey, everyone's imperfect. You know, it's okay to make mistakes. Can I learn from it? What we find is that friendly, supportive attitude, it has all sorts of benefits. It increases motivation. It allows you to cope. So just just for an example, there was one study done of um, soldiers who had come back from Iraq and Afghanistan and actually seen action overseas. And they found that how soldiers treated themselves, how compassionate they were to themselves around the the real trauma they had experienced was a very powerful predictor of whether or not they developed PTSD nine months later, post-traumatic stress disorder. And in fact, it was more powerful than how much action they had seen. Mm. So more important than what you experience in life is how you relate to yourself in the midst of that experience when when it's really traumatic or difficult. And so, you know, when people say self-compassion is a weakness, not for these soldiers, you know, and if you think, again, to use a metaphor, if you think of life as a battle in some ways, it's challenging. It's Mm -hmm. really hard to be a human being. You know, it always has been. But you might say even especially now, when you go into these challenges or when you go into battle, who do you want inside your head? Do you want an ally who's saying, I'm on your side, I'm here to support you? Do you want to be a friend, that kind of that warmth, that care, that I'm going to do what I can to try to meet your needs as best I can? Do you want that voice inside your head? Or do you want a voice that shames you and say, it says you aren't good enough and you aren't good as, as good as this other person? And, you know, kind of a very defeatist voice. And, and, and strong self-criticism, people thinks, it, think it makes them stronger. It actually doesn't. You're actually pulling out the rug from underneath yourself. Now, again, that doesn't mean it's like Stuart Smiley, I'm great, I'm wonderful. Yeah, no, what you're saying is I acknowledge I'm a flawed human being. Everyone is a flawed human being. I'm going to try to be as friendly and supportive as I can. I'm going to try to learn from my mistakes. As opposed to taking my mistakes personally, How can, what can I learn from this? And that kind of attitude of learning and growth actually is a very powerful way to um, to actually succeed and be more motivated. So it makes you more strong, not weaker. It makes you um, more motivated, not less. It actually allows you to feel more connected, not more isolated, right? A lot of people have misconceptions about self-compassion that it's, you know, leads to self-pity or self-indulgence. They're all completely the opposite. So it's, it's the entire practice in a weird way is paradoxical. I just was taking some notes here because I realized there are about six things I need to follow up <laughs> okay. on. From, that's a sign of a good guest, by the way, okay. so I don't say that to criticize. I know I've been promising the listener that we'll dive into the nitty-gritty of how to actually do this thing. But, yes. But you've uh-huh. raised a couple of things that I do mm-hmm. think we need to chase down. You talked about Stuart Smalley. Yes. Def- uh-huh. That is a character from Saturday yes. Night Live played yes. by the now, I guess, former senator resigned on, under a cloud, Al Franken from Minnesota. Back in his acting comedian days, he was on SNL, and he played a character named Stuart Smalley, would look in the in the mirror and say something like, I'm good enough. 
I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Yes. So that is not what you're talking about. <laughs> That's here. right. Yeah, it's not positive thinking. It's actually, it's not about judgments or evaluations at all. It's just, I'm, you know, I'm a human being. I'm flawed. I'm imperfect. I'm trying to learn and grow. I'm doing the best I can. And it's really about an, a supportive, friendly attitude toward oneself. And that support is a tremendous source of strength, coping, and resilience. And it's one that, you know, it's, it's really kind of, um, it's, it makes me a bit sad that in our society, we don't utilize this strength. You know, we, we don't realize that um, we can actually give ourselves a lot of the support we need. Not completely, we aren't automatons, but we're so reliant on other people to meet our needs, to make us feel loved, to make us feel supported, to make us feel okay. You know, they've got their own stuff going on. They can't always be there for ourselves. You know, some people like to describe self-compassion as a way of reparenting yourself. Mm. So the ideal parents, you know, met your needs consistently. They were warm. They were accepting. Um, they also helped guide you and, and pointed out where you made mistakes to help you learn and grow and, you know, become this the person hopefully that, that would be the, the ideal person we all want to be. But, of course... No one has perfect parents. People who, who, who have more supportive, warm, kind, caring parents, they do tend to have more natural self-compassion. They internalize that. And people whose parents weren't warm and supportive, you know, or they, they have insecure attachment, it's a little, it's a little harder. You, you naturally, you, you're less self-compassionate. The beautiful thing about this is you can learn it as a skill. Mm. This is not just a naturally occurring personality trait. I mean, it is, but it's also a practice. You can actually do this. You can actually cultivate the ability to be kinder and more supportive to yourself, especially when you're struggling. I mean, that, that's, that's the really exciting thing about self-compassion is there's um, a lot of research show, that shows this is actually a trainable skill. It's interesting you talked about the role of your parents. So I had and have very warm and supportive parents, uh-huh. and yet I have – very nasty inner narrator, right? Maybe because I descended from a long line of depressives and anxious mm-hmm. people and alcoholics, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the stories I told myself for a long time before getting into meditation was: uh, my father has an expression, which is the price of security is insecurity. In other words, we venerate worrying, uh, especially on the Jewish side of my uh-huh. family. Uh-huh. Um, and actually, he, that's not his personal motto. I learned later he made that up to make me feel better about the fact that I was worrying all the time. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And I told myself that any success I was succeed, uh, experiencing here in the hallways of ABC News, mm-hmm. where I've been for 19 years now mm-hmm. and w- has traditionally been a very tough place, less so now, but was very, mm-hmm. very tough when I first got here, mm-hmm. was because I was worrying all the time and and had had very high standards, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And I think a lot of people tell this story. You addressed yeah. this a little bit, but I want you to – I just want to go back to it. This internal cattle prod that many of us have. Yes. How do you – what do you say to folks? And I'm sure you hear the argument yeah, all the time. Like yeah. this is the thing that's keeping me afloat. Right. And, and, and you know, there's a way in which it is true, right? So, for instance, if you have um, let's say a very I, – I like to use this example. Let's say um, a parent is trying to motivate their child. And so in some ways, we are, we are our own parent and our own child, right? Self to self relating. So there's two ways to motivate a child to do better. So um, let's say the child comes home with a failing math grade and the parent tries to, wants, wants the child to go to college. So you can motivate that child with fear. 
You can be really harsh. I'm ashamed of you. You're a good-for-nothing loser. You know, I, I'm going to ground you for 10 months. Now, that will kind of work. The child will probably work harder and study more next time because they're, they're afraid of getting that negative reaction. So it kind of works. But there are a lot of unintended consequences. For instance, a performance anxiety. They may be so anxious the next time they take the test, it's actually going to allow, that's going to undermine their ability to, to do peak performance. Um, fear of failure. You know, it just, they, you might develop so much fear that you're going to fail and get, you know, your, your parents' criticism and, you know, grounding or whatever punishment that you get fear of failure and then eventually you might give up. So there's another way to motivate that child and that's with encouragement and support. First of all, hey, I'm so sorry you failed. Ouch, bummer. You know, kind of, it's okay. I love you anyway. It doesn't affect my love for you. The bottom line is it's okay. You're human. You fail. But because I care about you and I know you want to go to college, what can I do to help you? How can I support you? Can we look and see your study patterns? Maybe this didn't work out so well. Should we hire in a tutor? You know, I believe in you. How can I support you to reach your goals? So the, the goals of self-compassionate people are just as high as everyone else's because, of course, you care about yourself. You want to you reach your goals. But what happens when you don't meet them? That's the big difference. So, yes, fear, punishment, and kind of in a way this inner critic is kind of harsh self-punishment kind of works, but then it might lead to anxiety, neuroticism, depression, you know, look at the epidemic of suicide. Mm -hmm. It has a lot of negative consequences. You can reach the same heights from this kind, encouraging, supportive approach. And also, you know, what, what we show, what the research shows is when you feel safe because of this kind of bottom line of even if I fail, it's going to be okay, that um, what we know is you probably know this, negative emotions narrow our focus and positive emotions broaden our focus. So when you feel safe and you've got the positive emotion of, of kindness and we know that compassion actually is a rewarding emotion, it actually allows you to see more possibilities. Maybe you didn't, you know, when you were so threat focused, you didn't see this opportunity. But once you feel safe, oh, I see, maybe there's a completely different way to approach it I didn't even think about. So it allows for more, what they call in, you know, acceptance and commitment therapy. It allows for more psychological flexibility. Which, of course, is going to make you safer because you're having better ideas. Which is going to make you safer and it's going to help you, you know, so so actually, you know, we used to believe that the best way to motivate our children was through harsh corporal punishment, Mm. spare the rod, spoil the child. Mm -hmm. And we know pretty, we know well now through a lot of research that actually that's not the best way to motivate our children. It works. But it causes so much damage as other ways to, to motivate our children. It doesn't mean you're complacent. It doesn't mean, yeah, do whatever you want. That's not healthy. But how do we learn? How do we grow? How do we, you know, recover from our mistakes and do better next time? All in the context of the bottom line is I love you. You know, we actually can learn to do that with ourselves. Um, it, it does feel weird at first. I'm, I'm not going to lie. If, if you spent your whole life relating to yourself in a particular way, um, you know, kind of with this harshness, it feels a little strange to be more friendly towards yourself. But you, you can practice it, and it does get easier with time. And I really encourage people to find their own authentic voice. Again, for you, Dan, I'm not going to suggest you hug yourself. It's not going to work. But there may be, you know, some other ways. What works for you? What helps you feel more accepted, you know, more encouraged, more cared for? 
and I, using those pathways in. I was going to tell a story that I, I don't know if I've told this on the podcast before. So if you've heard this before, I apologize. But I, about 10, 11 months ago, no, maybe nine months ago, I can't remember. Anyway, not that long ago, did a retreat as part of this book that I'm writing about uh-huh. kindness. I did a one-on-one. I convinced one of my favorite meditation teachers who has a real focus on compassion and self-compassion. Her name is Spring Washam. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's, yeah she wrote a great book. She's yeah. a phenomenal human being yeah. and um, has been on the, sh- on the show a couple times. And um, she and I did a one-on-one compassion retreat. Okay. So this was not just self-compassion but – Compassion writ large, and, yeah. but obviously self compassion is a huge focus. Yeah, and so we did. I had never I'd done self compassion practices before, or and compassion practices before, but it was a little bit of like a side interest, not the main dish. And so right. for ten days we did nothing with that, and mm-hmm. actually filmed a lot of it uh-huh. because for, we're going to use it in the ten percent happier app. Anyway, at the beginning she was saying, you know. Uh, when you're sending compassion to yourself, you know, you maybe you put your hand on your heart. And I was like, there is no – I love yeah. you, Spring, but yeah, there's yeah. no way yeah. I'm doing that. Mm-hmm. And then by day five or six, there yeah. was a moment – and I'm embarrassed to say it was on camera probably because I think it happened repeatedly where I was – I noticed something coming up. Maybe some of my inner ho- repeated hobgoblins are sort of a rushing sense, you mm-hmm. know, an impatience mm-hmm. and a suffering that comes from like not wanting to be here right now and – looking forward uh-huh. to the next thing. And then um, also a lot of self-criticism, like, oh, mm-hmm. wow, you were just off your game for the last 10 minutes or uh-huh. Uh-huh. you have some memory surfaces of me being horrible in some one way. Uh-huh. And I actually did say, all right, it's okay. And I put my hand, I felt my hand go to my heart. Uh-huh. And what I noticed is actually there, once I was, once all the inner chatter had come down yeah, because I was on retreat and I didn't have a lot to think about yeah, and I was more aware of what was going on, when I felt bad, it actually manifested in the area around my heart. So uh-huh. it actually hurt there. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, so anyway, yeah, you're right. I'm not the kind of guy traditionally who would hug himself. And yet here I was on this retreat with my hand on my heart, sending myself well wishes. Right. And I would never, I would. You know, I'm reluctant to admit that publicly, but here we yeah. are. And I, yeah. I do admit it publicly because I think actually it would be useful for it's other useful. men who yeah. would resist this type of thing. Right. Yeah. And so and also, we, so for instance, we teach the difference between loving kindness and compassion. You know, there, there are two sides of the same coin, but loving kindness is more general, wishing yourself well, to be happy and peaceful. Compassion is specifically, by definition, aimed at suffering, aimed at pain. Mm -hmm. So one practice we teach, which is actually very useful, um, is if you're you're feeling something difficult, maybe anger or fear or sadness or grief or confusion, to the extent that you can locate it in your body, and that's one of the gifts of mindfulness practice is the ability to actually physically – did you see see that great new study by Richie Davidson that found that the ability to – actually know where the, the emotion is manifesting in your body. So, so this congruence between knowing what you're feeling and where it is in your body, that that in and of itself leads to well-being. And it's called interoception? Yeah, well, interoception is the, the, actually the ability to feel things in your body. But I forget, they've got, they call it something, something about attunement. I'm sorry, it just came out like two days ago. I haven't read it closely. But the ability to feel your difficult emotions as a bodily sensation mm-hmm. and track when I'm more anxious, my body feels this way. Yeah. When I'm, you know, so just track the changes in your body as kind of attuned with your body as a manifestation of your emotions. 
it's actually it's a really useful skill. But anyway, so I, if you I ha- just will say that for me <laughs> as a meditator, that happened quickly. Yes, that I just instead of being fully engulfed and overwhelmed by an emotion for me, That's mostly right. anger or self pity, yeah. uh-huh. um, I was switching to noticing how it felt. Right. Okay. And so, what you can do if you can just put a hand wherever that emotion is experienced, it might be in your gut. It might be in your throat. It might be in your head. It may be in your heart. You know, it, it almost doesn't matter. And then so what happens is when you put a warm hand here, again, part of this is just physiology. You know, we, just think about it. When babies are born, they have no language. Touch for human beings is this great research on touch in the care system. Touch is one of the primary access points for compassion, for feeling safe, for feeling cared for. Our whole parasympathetic nervous system is very closely linked to touch. And so, you know, it's sad because, yes, it is touchy-feely. But nonetheless, literally, literally <laughs> but as human beings, that's, we are that's, we are, that's the way yes. we're designed physiologically. Yes. So there are other ways to access it, but it seems a shame to, to miss out on that really powerful tool just because it feels uncomfortable. Because as human beings, that's the way our bodies and our brains are designed. Is that they're, they're, we're designed to react to touch. This is and why also, I think you're also such a tone success. of voice. Oh, I was just going to say, this is why I think you're – hold that <laughs> okay, thought, okay. but I want to give you a compliment. This no, is why you. I think you're such a successful communicator on this because you do have a style that is a little touchy-feely, but you back it up with so many basic biological and scientific facts that even somebody like me who has such a powerful allergy uh-huh. to that kind of style, yeah. I, I, I have to listen. Right. Well, thank you. Well, and I think in some ways that's the integration of the masculine and feminine, right? So sadly, why do we not like touchy-feely? Because it's kind of seen to be feminine qualities and science and hard logic is supposed to be a masculine quality. And, you know, to succeed, we're supposed to be masculine. And and I'm both, you know, and that's, you know, both simultaneously. That's kind of... We all are, right? we, We all are. But here's the thing is men are socialized. They aren't, they aren't allowed to be in touch with the kind of more warm, you know, I, I said earlier, I, I'm kind of referring to this as the yin and yang of self-compassion. There's the receptive tender side, and there's also the action-oriented kind of more fierce side. And both are necessary for all human beings. Um, I really work hard to integrate both, to honor both. Um, but in work contexts, the young, the kind of masculine is honored and valued, and the more feminine isn't, and that's a real disadvantage to women. But the way men suffer is because in the relational field, they're socialized not to be in touch with those more tender sides, and that hurts men too. Yes. You know, and so we're all being harmed by not being able to be our true authentic selves, which is both masculine and feminine, both active and passive, both receptive and you know goal-oriented these, these these essential dialectic, we need both simultaneously all the time. And I think maybe that's what you're picking up on when saying I'm a, a touchy-feely scientist. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm integrating my left and right brain, and, and both are really important, I feel. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, uh, I think about, I don't know if I'm going to get this quote right, but uh, 7A Selassie, who's a teacher I really, who's a friend and a uh-huh. teacher I really like. Um, she also teaches a lot on the 10% Happier app, and so... She has mentioned something like, you think you're thinking your thoughts. This is a quote she's used, taken uh-huh. from somebody else. But you're, 
you think you're thinking your thoughts, but you're actually thinking the culture's thoughts. That's right. And that's so right. for me, I mean, yeah. I don't want to think of myself as sexist because obviously that's one of yeah. the worst things you can be in our yeah. woke society right now. Yeah. And yet, obviously, this allergy I have to the touchy-feely is yeah. sexist in, in many ways well, and we, that we are socialized to be that way. Because the feminine has less power. That's one of the outcomes of patriarchy is this, this side of human nature, when it's devalued by patriarchy, um, it means that, so f- not you, Dan, as a person, but in terms of the larger cultural context, which is which is operating in you unconsciously, you know, you aren't choosing to be this way, but when you think touchy-feely, what it's triggering is less powerful. If I'm touchy-feely, I am less powerful because I'm moving more toward the feminine where there's less power. And that's that's... Damaging to men. Yeah, well, I, I guess consciously, I'm not thinking that consciously. Know, I'm thinking it's just annoying. You aren't consciously doing yes, it. This, yeah, see, that's yeah. what we know about it. And biases are all implicit. They're yes, all unconscious, yes. whether it's about race or gender. Yeah. These things are operating outside of our awareness. And one of the beautiful things about uh, mindfulness is that it does give us more clarity. I mean, we've talked yeah. about it a lot on this yeah. show, and I know it's sort of a little bit off topic for what you, you've come here to discuss, but. Bringing into the sunlight, which is a painful process, yes. embarrassing, humiliating. Yes. To see, oh wow, wow! I just reached this snap judgment about somebody based on their pigmentation. Yes. That's pretty negative. Yeah, and that that's in you. If you can yeah. see that, and as you said before, not take it personally. Yes, then you're not owned by it, and then you you're avoiding a whole many many worse mistakes. Yes, exactly. But that's why you also this again. This is the yin and the yang. The yang kind of gives us. The, Clarity and it's kind of the slightly more masculine energy, but you also have to like be kind to yourself. Yes, you didn't yes, choose to yes, be prejudiced. It's no. not like I signed up for. Yeah, I want to be prejudiced. Mm-hmm. You know, this this is part of the larger culture, and so you have to be able to hold the pain. And so, so these two, these this dialectic of self compassion. So, so the yin energy allows us to kind of be with ourselves in a compassionate way to kind of validate ourselves, to accept ourselves as we are. It's very powerful. It's especially powerful for dealing with shame. Mm. How do you hold shame? Shame drives so much negative behavior, so much destructive behavior. People can't even begin to touch their shame, so they act out. They start shooting people. I mean, it's it's really destructive. Um, and actually, you know, there's a little bit of gender and shame as well because it manifests differently. But a lot of men's behavior, what we know psychologically, is driven by the avoidance of shame, mm. right? How do you hold shame, that, that intense pain? You have to hold it with kindness. You know, hey, this is part of being human. Everyone feels this. Everyone's imperfect. Everyone makes mistakes. You, you know, the mess of shame, you need to hold it with compassion. And so the, the healing power of self-compassion is, is more part of the, you know, it's not totally either or, but it's part, more part of the yin side, the kind of being with ourselves in a kind, accepting, warm way. Loving way, if I can use that word as a scientist, but it is. It's an expression of love. But then there's also the action side. You know, think of a firefighter who jumps into a burning building to save people who are, you know, about to go up in flames. Or service, you know, servicemen and women who, who actually risk their own lives to protect people. That is an ultimate act of compassion. You know, but it, it's it's the other side of it is taking action or motivate, you know, a, a coach who motivates a, the kid to achieve their goals or teachers or people who work three jobs to put food on their table for their kids. All these stem from care. 
But so sometimes care requires being with acceptance. Sometimes care requires taking action to try to alleviate suffering. And that's slightly more, more the young side of self-compassion. But people, first of all, they're confused. They don't realize it's there, and that's why they think it's weak. That's why they think it's selfish. They don't realize that it also has these um, action qualities. Uh, and, then, and then that's where gender comes in. All right, so a men aren't allowed to be yin, and women aren't allowed to be yang. We all need both, so we're kind of both messed up because of it, you know. And so self-compassion is a way to hold all of it. You can hold the pain of things like patriarchy, and I'm sure you don't want to be patriarchal, but you're, you're a white man, and so some of the, you know, again, you didn't choose to be this way, but this is part of the larger culture that's actually encoded in your brain patterns, yep. right? So how do you how do you deal with that? Well, first of all, you have to have a lot of kindness. You have to have a lot of forgiveness. You have a lot of have to have a lot of acceptance, and you have to be able to touch the pain of it. You know, and I'm sure that my my colleague Chris Germer, we were talking about this issue, and he just it's a white male. He broke down and cried because he touched the pain of that. He's such a kind guy, and when he really opened to the pain of his own privilege. You know, it was just, yeah, it's it really touching. Yeah. But he, but because he, he, he developed all these self-compassion practices with me, he was able to hold it. So he didn't have to defend himself. He didn't have to pretend, oh, it's not there. Or you, it's, it's not, I don't know. I'm not privileged. You know, he, he could open to it. And then you have to open to the pain, the yin, hold it with kindness before you can take action, which is the yang, and do something about it. And both are, both are really needed. Uh, and the, the flip side is for women, and I'm a woman, so my, my next book is actually um, going to be called Fierce Compa- Self-Compassion for a Woman. It's kind of, I think women really need to cultivate this yang energy. We need to protect ourselves. We need to say no more. We aren't, we're going to stop subordinating our needs. No, you can't sexually harass me. No, you can't abuse me. No, you can't pay me less. No, you know, it has to be more equal. Uh, I'm not just going to like give up everything that's valuable to me to meet other people's needs. That, that, that socialization, you know, you, you may call me names, but I'm not going to buy it. You know, women really need to rise up and claim their power, which has been stripped for them in large part because they aren't allowed to have this more yang energy, you know, and, and so everyone really needs both. And I think the beautiful thing about compassion is it is both. There's there's mama and there's mama bear, right, right, right. <laughs> you know. On this yang or yang or whatever yang, go with yang, um, uh, aversion, the sort of uh-huh. fierce uh-huh. self compassion. I think of my wife. I'll have to ask her uh-huh. permission if if we're going to post this, okay, for, to talk about her. But um, let's just assume for the second for the moment that I do have her permission. I'm going to write down. Okay, uh, ask permission. Her, yeah, um, because it's personal. I watch with her dealing. I don't think we've refer to it as struggling with the yang side of self-compassion, uh-huh. but I do watch her struggle with how to draw boundaries with me, with our yes. son, uh, with her yeah. bosses, yeah. and she's really uncomfortable with it, and yeah. then sometimes maybe she feels she takes it too far and is yeah. overly harsh, and like yes. titrating uh-huh. that is really yes. tricky, and right. I, I have compassion for that. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I'm, I'm similar. So I'm a successful academic. And usually in many, any male dominated field, to be successful, you've got to really draw on your young side, 
you know, your um, kind of more masculine and competitive, um, strong side, we get called names for it. This is this is the double bind women are in. To succeed, we have to be young, but we aren't personally liked when we're young. <laughs> People like us when we're young, but we can't succeed. You know, and mm. so that's why I just do away with the double bind. I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. But see, this is the thing. If you use that energy, the drawing boundaries or the protecting yourself or saying, no, I need to meet my needs. If you do it from a place of care, I like to refer to it as it's caring force. You're being forceful, but it's not aggressive. It's not personal. You aren't, you aren't like blaming people. You're just the force, that mama bear energy comes from a very pure, loving place of care and kindness. And when you when you remember that when you integrate both energies, then it's clean. Then you don't then you don't just explode. You know you can target it and say no, that's not okay. But it doesn't mean that you aren't okay. But no, that behavior is not okay. And so when, when integration is allowed to occur, um, it just it just works a lot better. It's also a lot more effective, you know. Um, but we're going to have to confront gender roles in order for both man and woman to be able to be our our full authentic selves because there's so, there's so much pain in the world, mm-hmm. you know. More 10% happier after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. I owe you something, which is at some point I cut us off and sent us. I cut you off and sent us down a tangent. Okay, you were about to say something about tone of voice. Oh yes, all right, okay. So, um, so what we know from um, the research, and this is a lot. I don't. You've probably interviewed Dr. Keltner from UC Berkeley. Yeah, I have. Uh, yeah, he's yeah. not been on the show. Dr. Yeah. Keltner, Dr. Keltner. I don't know how you pronounce his name. But da- it rhymes with cracker. Dacker. Dacker Keltner. Okay, so Dacker. <laughs> yeah. I did a piece on him for uh-huh. Nightline about ten years ago. He yeah. runs. Uh, the Greater a, Good Center. Yeah, the Greater yeah, Good exactly. Center and also yeah. basically a lab that studies compassion, yes. not just self-compassion, but all, yeah, all forms of compassion. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, really cool guy. I've been actually really eager to have him on the show. So you Dacher, should have if you're him. listening, he'd, he'd be great. Come to New York. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
But yeah, so he's done some great research on this, showing that the, basically the triggers of the care system, the triggers of compassion. And so um, so uh, there are different ones like, so touch, we talked about touch is a powerful trigger, but tone of voice. So his research shows that around the world, universally, regardless of what culture you go to, there's the same sound of compassion, which is, I'm going to ask you to do it, Dan. What's the sound of compassion? So if I'm talking to my son and he's hurt himself... Or, yeah, or, yeah. If anyone, if anyone was hurt, what would you naturally say? Are you okay, dude? No. What's the, what's the, what's the sound without words? Make a sound. Uh, a sound. Ah. Yes. Yeah. Around. There's not a single culture where it's like, woohoo, you're no. hurt. It's no. not. It's a particular. Well, ah. among then, my f- teenage boys, we would laugh at each other if we were hurt. So. So the yeah. compassion part of our brain had not fully come <laughs> right. into but as an express so, but so there's a particular sound and I, there's some term for it that ah uh, that kind of yeah. up and down and and animals uh, do it too yes. it's actually again this is part of our physiology remember huh. when we come out of the womb we don't have language so so much, those first couple years of life are so important this is where our whole when our whole attachment system is formed pre-verbally so what are our communicators that we're safe and we're loved and you know cared for uh, things like touch and tone of voice. Also, gaze is an, another one. I mean, there's a little less research on gaze, but tone of voice. Huh. So for some people, you know, maybe they don't say particularly harsh things to themselves, but their tone is really cold. So warming up the tone, you know. Internally it, for internally, yourself. Internally. You can actually, it's mindful. It's not just what you say, it's how you say it. It's also your body posture. Is your body posture posture tense? Like, are uh-huh. you being tense and tight with yourself and kind of cold? Or are you being more relaxed and more warm with yourself? And that's why I made the joke earlier that it's about warming things up is about, about, about as opposed to cooling, being yes. more cool. There is something about warmth, you know. And, and again, this is just our physiology. So we, we need to... Um, you know, it's, it's really... It's not about... It's not a mental practice. Compassion is not a mental practice. There is a mental component, but it's really an embodied practice. It's about feeling, you know. It's about, um, you know, often when we teach people self-compassion, we say, see if you can just kind of drop out of your head and your mind and the storyline and just drop into your body, you know. And what we're doing in a way is is we're, <laughs> if you want to be scientific about it, it's, it's the parasympathetic nervous system. We're calming down. Our cortisol is reducing, you know, less adrenaline. Our heart rate becomes more variable, more flexible. Oxytocin is being released. And this is actually an embodied experience. And so that's why I think it's really useful to come to self-compassion, not just through the mind. Yes, the words are important. That's one pathway in. You can actually uh, approach it as an embodied practice. So, okay, you've now teed me up to finally get okay, to how, finally you get do to how do we practice. Right. So it seems, I'm, I'm guessing, yeah. based on, I'm not guessing, based on my experience, there are kind of two ways. One is the formal seated or practice, and the other is free range on the go Informal, yeah, yeah. And so what we find actually in our research, so we've developed this training program called the Mindful Self-Compassion Program. And we find it doesn't matter which one you do. Hmm. They're, they're equivalent. They, they're both effective. So you can sit in meditation. Um, we know that loving kindness meditation um, increases self-compassion. We have other meditations like using the breath as a way to kind of calm and soothe yourself 
or we actually um, we actually teach a practice where we we tailor the phrases to be a little more aimed at your pain, because loving kindness sometimes it can be hard to throw friendly wishes when you're just in a lot of pain. You can actually, with compassion, you need to turn toward the pain directly and just kind of validate that it hurts. That kind of kind that oh. <laughs> That type of attitude for the pain. So you can do that in sitting meditation. But there are a lot of informal practices. So we, we do teach people to find a touch that feels supportive. Hand-on-heart works for about 50% of people. About 50% it doesn't. Some people like hands on the solar plexus. Some people like putting a hand on your face. Some people just holding their own hand. I mean, people have to find a way in, the type of touch that works. But that's one way. Um learning to speak to yourself in a more friendly and supportive manner. Um, for many people, the best way is to is to think about what would I say to a close friend who, who I really cared about who was going through the exact same situation I'm in? You know, what would I more naturally say, especially if I was at my most compassionate? What would I say to support them, to help them, to let them know that I cared about them in this in their time of struggle? So you can use that as a template for yourself. You can also imagine what an ideally compassionate person would say to you or, or a spiritual figure. You know, when people say, what would Jesus say? In a way, what would Jesus say is a self-compassion practice. You know, can I model my inner dialogue based on what I would imagine someone like Jesus would say? You know, so it, this, it can work with religion. It can also be separate from it. Um, uh, compassionate letter writing. Uh, you'll probably like this. There was one study that showed if you wrote a self-compassionate letter for seven days straight, it um, reduced depression for three months and increased happiness for six months. Mm. Right, that very simple act, and I think there's a lot of uh, reasons of how it operates. One thing, your, your perspective taking instead of being lost in the pain, you're stepping outside of yourself and doing perspective taking and saying, "Wow, you're really having a hard time. Is there anything I can do to help?" So by doing that, you're disidentifying with the pain, which in and of itself is powerful. That's kind of the mindfulness. But then you're also adding the sense of connectedness. Hey, it happens to everyone. Imperfection is the human experience. It's not just you. You know, and we forget that when, when, when we make a mistake or we get that call from the doctor, we think something has gone wrong. Like, this is the plan I signed up for. As <laughs> if so everyone else is, is being perfect and has a perfect life and it's just me who's struggling. So reminding yourself of common humanity that this is normal and this is part of being human. You aren't alone. And, the, and then the kindness, right? So the warmth, the kindness, the care aspect. All three elements are really important. So another way you can, you can practice self-compassion is just reminding yourself of those three components. We have something called the self-compassion break. First, you use mindfulness. You just remember, wow, this is, I'm struggling. You might think that's obvious. It's really not. A lot of people aren't even aware that they're struggling. They're so lost in the struggle or trying to fix the struggle or, you know, they don't have any perspective. They're totally identified with it. They can't help themselves when they're lost in the pain. So first is mindfulness. Oh, I see. This is a moment where I'm really having a tough time. And then you remind yourself of common humanity. Well, this is part of life. It's not just me. It's not abnormal to be struggling. You know, the sense of isolation that we get when we, when we fall into the illusion that everyone else is perfect and we aren't, it's debilitating. You know, they say in, in evolutionary biology, a lone monkey is a dead monkey, yeah. right? You know, so that feeling isolated because we've made a mistake is really, really detrimental. So remember, hey, this is, this is part of how we learn. This is normal. It's natural. There's nothing wrong to be, make a mistake. And then 
bringing in the kindness. You know, what can I say to let myself know that even though I'm struggling, I care. I'm there for myself. I can support myself. I'm not going to abandon myself. I mean, think about that. Don't we do that? We abandon ourselves when we struggle. We just, you know, our minds don't even go there. We have this ability when we're in pain to actually give ourselves care, support, and kindness, and we just abandon it. We don't even use it. We just, we, we, it's like this, we've got this incredible, powerful tool. All we need to do is remember to use it, and, and we don't. And so you can just think, well, what would my really good friend to me say? What would my really good friend say to me right now? Or what would I say to a really good friend right now? Or what would Jesus say? Or whatever, whatever you know, image you have of compassion. Just remembering the kindness. When you put those three together, so you know, these are the three components of self-compassion in my model, the mindfulness, the common humanity, and the kindness. But if you want to talk about how it feels in a moment of yin self-compassion, it feels like loving, connected presence. You're holding your pain in loving, connected presence, right? But sometimes if the pain is because you need to protect yourself, it's different. It feels like fierce, empowered clarity. This is not okay. I'm going to stand together with my brothers and sisters, and I'm going to say no. Me too. Me too, exactly. And so the, the, the face, the, the, the manifestation of this caring um, force may vary, but it's all coming from the same place, you know. And mindfulness and, and compassion are kind of, they aren't exactly the same because, again, they have those slightly different targets, but they, it's, it's part of the same dance. You know, at some point, it's just open heart mind. And when your heart is open and your mind is open, you are connected with everything. So you just you talked about a lot of approaches we could take, but I'm, yeah. I'm still I'm just wondering for the listener right. uh, here, many of whom are med- many if not all of whom okay. are meditators. Uh-huh. Can you can you describe how we would do self compassion as part we, of our meditation yes, practice, right. which I would only imagine right. fuels the ability to oh, do it off. The I mean, cushion. we know meditation is one of the best ways you can actually train your brain and change your neural structure. So it's 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 very powerful. It's not the only way to do it. It's equally important to integrate it in your daily life. But so if you're meditating, um, so for instance, we, we teach meditation in the Mindful Self-Compassion Program. Uh, some is like what you do when your mind wanders. You can use the wandering mind as an opportunity for self-compassion. Mm. So not only do you notice that your mind has wandered, you might you might actually use that to say, ah, you know, just like, just Imagine like your your mind is like a little toddler who wandered off. Can you just hold the hand of that toddler, gently bring it back to where it's supposed to be? Of course it wanders. You know, it's just that's what it does. But I can still be kind to the wandering mind. You can actually use um, any sort of frustration that occurs in practice. Let's say you fall asleep, you can't focus, you're, you know, whatever, you aren't in that lovely peaceful state that people like. You can use that as an opportunity to practice compassion. Hmm. Give yourself some kindness and acceptance and remember that this is just part of the human experience. So that's one way you can do it. You can also, for instance, the breath. The breath can be used to kind of calm the mind and settle the mind as, as a focus of attention. But there's also a quality to the breath that you can focus in on. The breath itself can be very soothing, hmm. very comforting. 
Um, Paul Gilbert actually talks about the, the soothing rhythm of the breath. You know, it's, you can actually notice it. It's a strange way in which it's this internal rocking motion that you can rest in. You can allow yourself to be cared for by the breath. So that's another just little slant on it you can uh, use to um, activate this. Um, another practice, we, we, uh, it's actually my favorite practice, is uh, w- again using the breath. We imagine that we're breathing with each in-breath, you're breathing in compassion for yourself. And with each out-breath, you breathe out compassion for others. It's a derivation of the it's like, Tibetan yeah, it's Tibetan tonglen, but that practice is a little more. It's a beautiful practice, but you breathe in suffering of the world, and you transform it, and you breathe out compassion. So, if your if your aim is to actually cultivate self compassion, mm. we find it's actually a little more useful, a little less challenging to just breathe in for yourself. This is hard for me. Breathe out for others. This is a really good practice for caregivers. We teach it to like doctors and nurses or teachers. You know, it's hard. These jobs are hard. It's hard to care for others. I feel burnt out. I feel overwhelmed. Breathe in compassion for yourself. It's hard to feel this empathic distress. It's hard to do what I do. I feel overwhelmed. I feel burnt out. Breathe in compassion for yourself. Validate your own pain. And then when you breathe out, breathe out compassion for the person you're caring for. They're struggling too. And the nice thing about breathing compassion in and out is it's very connecting. It's, it's, a, it's a practice that's very connecting. You can breath in, breath out. Um, you can focus a little more on yourself if your pain is more salient or focus more on the other if their pain is more salient. But this idea that it's this flow inward and outward, that's, that's why it's a, it's a really nice practice. Um, all these meditations I have on my website, people can access What's them. the website? Uh, selfcompassion.org. Well, you, if you go... If you Google self-compassion, you'll find me. Nice. We'll so, also put it in the show yeah, notes for okay. listeners. But yeah. what about the repetition of phrases like, may I be happy? Yeah. yeah. So um, so loving kindness. We do t- also teach loving kindness. So again, um, my colleague, Chris Grimmer, I, I think he, he's brilliant. He developed a way of helping people find personally meaningful phrases that really help to the things that they need to hear. The standard phrases are fine and they work for a lot of people, but you know, may I be safe, may I be peaceful, may I be healthy, may I live with these. If, 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 you're, if you're devastated because you've just lost your son or something like that, it feels kind of a little incongruent to say, may I be safe, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I live with these. Yeah. And it's actually, so, so actually, he, he guides people through an exercise where you actually think, what do I need to hear right now? You know, if I had someone who could whisper in my ear in this moment exactly what I need to hear, what would that be? And then you use that as your phrase. So it's a little more personalized and also can be a little more targeted toward if what you need to hear is addressing the real pain you're in, then you can, you know, use, may I accept myself as I am, you know, may I support myself, you know, I'm okay. Whatever it is you need to hear, you actually personalize your phrases to, to touch that directly. So that's one way we, we kind of work with the loving kindness practice. How has this practice played? I mean, you you got interested in self compassion. There was something that that Zen teacher in Berkeley, low these many years, yeah. said about self compassion that turned you on and has become your life, your livelihood, yeah. your, your career. Yeah. How has it played out in your life? You know, I you mentioned a, a son. You have a son who has special yes. needs. I yes. mean, how has this all worked for you? Yeah. Well, yeah. So I, I talk a lot about my son because he's really my my best teacher. Um, so yeah, so he, my son is autistic and I had about seven years of 
pretty dedicated self-compassion practice under my belt by the time he got diagnosed. Um, and you know, I can't even imagine how I would have gotten through without it. I, I would have, but it helped me tremendously. So it helped me both, not only the mindfulness practice of accepting my feelings, you know, allowing the grief to be there, um, allowing the feelings of disappointment to be there without judging them, without making them go away. But what really helped was in addition to that, giving myself that, you know, it's really hard. This is really hard. Oh, you know, I'd actually give myself that, that, that love, that kindness, that care, especially like when he was having an ear-splitting tantrum. You know, even though he's in pain, I made sure he was safe, but that's when I would do my breathing in compassion practice. I would just, this is so hard, breathe in for me, this is so hard, I feel overwhelmed, I don't know what to do, I feel like I want to jump out a window, you know, and it's, you know, and the kind of gave myself that love and support and that care. And then I was able to also breathe out for him, and, you know, so it allowed me to stay connected in those moments, rather than just focusing on him or, you know, just being overwhelmed. So, um it's really, it's really helped me in that practice. Just really everything I've gone through. I mean, at this point, um, self-compassion is, 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 be, it is, it has become a habit, you know, occasionally, yeah, sure. Thoughts will come up, um, feelings of failure and stuff come up and there's pain. But now my, my habit is to just recognize it as pain and to do whatever I need to do to be there for myself in the moment. Again, whether that's I need some acceptance, some yin, some soothing, some comforting, some validating, or whether that's action. You know, it's it's helped me, um, you might say, well, you know, so I'm I'm an academic and there's 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 been some struggles in the in my academic career as well. It's really helped me the fact that I can integrate the care with the taking action. It's helped me be more stable and more balanced even in times of challenge. Um, get not. I'm still a mess. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, Dad. I'm still a mess, but I am a compassionate mess. It's, it's an achievable goal. I mean, that's the beauty of it. I, I sometimes I joke. I'm glad I'm a compassion teacher and not a mindfulness teacher because <laughs> I don't always have equanimity. I'm not always aware. I get lost, but I can pretty quickly now. I'm in the habit of whatever pain, whatever mess is happening. I just hold that with. Compassion. That's the name of your book, by the way, Compassionate Mess. That's the name. I, well, I was thinking that. I, I think it's going to be Fierce Self-Compassion for Women, but I also like the idea of Compassionate Mess. It's a really, it's a nice idea because, you know, it kind of explains what it is. And that actually is the goal. Rob Nairn actually said Message that. Message to your editor. Okay. That's Dan, the book Dan, I'd be more likely Dan to pick thinks, up at an airport. But that's right. But remember, my book's for women. I know. <laughs> I think women. I know a lot of women. I okay. feel like I've sold well, a lot of books to women. Okay, so we can we can we can maybe have two titles. But I, I agree. I, I love that phrase because it, it just really it captures it. Self high self esteem is not an achievable goal. You know, maybe not even a desirable goal. Yeah, exactly. But compassionate mess is, and when you hold things in compassion, anything becomes workable. That's the thing. It becomes workable. And you can actually learn. It's, it sounds strange, but you actually learn to rest your awareness in the loving, connected presence and the compassion, holding the pain, as opposed to your awareness being identified with the pain. Well, so let's walk walk me through that. Okay. So how this works in a moment in your mind for yes. you. So, so for me, I have lots of, I don't want to guess at what your little, uh, you know, daily... Um, 
thorns in your, in your side maybe. <laughs> uh, but for me, it's like yeah. uh, I have the whole self-critical thing around I have more around belly fat than I want to have. I'm a skinny okay. guy, but I wish I had the abs I had in my mid-30s. And right. I'm now well coming up on 48, and they're okay. not there anymore in any discernible way. And so every time I pass a reflective surface when I'm – I was just at the beach for a week with my right. family, there was a lot of like, oh, my God, looking at myself. Right. So what in that moment – how would right. things work? So, okay, so – and this is why the three components of mindfulness, common humanity, and kindness are helpful because they're actually it's almost like a little mini instruction guide of what to do. So first, it has to always start with mindfulness. Mindfulness is the foundation. you got to notice that hurts. Instead of being lost in the thought that I wish I had to have a six-pack, it's like the pain of that, that's, that's you know, that, that's, that hurts. Whether or not it should hurt, whether or not, you know, whatever. In fact, it doesn't matter because it does hurt. Mm-hmm. So you look in the mirror, oh, wow, that's painful. I mean, look, at, I'm, I'm 52. You know, I'm past my prime. That's not fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it, it's just, but it's the reality, right? So... You look in the mirror and you say, oh, my God, I'm getting jowls or whatever it is. So identifying the pain of it, right? And then then the common humanity, right? Just remembering, well, this is, it's part of being human. It's part of aging. Everyone, you know, nothing lasts forever. This is actually part of the human experience. There is no human being alive that... (laughs) that didn't get older, you know, and that these things, their body didn't start changing. That's not what it means to be human. It's not just me. See, you, it, There's a tendency in the moment to think that every other man in the world, they're all GQ supermodels, aren't they? they no, all but have a I have pack. some friends who are older than me who are ripped, so that's okay. on my mind. Yeah, okay, but, but, but they too, they too eventually... You know, they'll get old and they'll die. Sorry to, sorry to break the news, Dan. No, I, I'm well aware of that news. Yeah. I'm just – what's happening cognitively for me is I know I'm going to die. Uh, I know everybody I know is going to die, but I feel too young right. to be at sure. that point. Right, right. Okay. So, but no, so nonetheless, so maybe some people, that's maybe your friends who managed to keep the six-pack at age 50, whatever, maybe that's not their particular thing they struggle with. But surely it's something. Mm-hmm. The human that's experience true. is about we struggle with our imperfection. The human experience is not about perfection. That's an Instagram illusion. <laughs> you know, really, isn't it true? Yeah, maybe it's not. Maybe it's not autism, but it's something else. Maybe it's not that they don't have a six-pack. But it's something else. Everyone struggles in their own way. I've thought about starting an Instagram account of only of my son's tantrums. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, but so what you're really opening to it's not you're opening to a particular thing. You're opening to the just the fact of human imperfection. Mm-hmm. It's normal. You know this. This is, you aren't abnormal. It's nothing bad or wrong about not having a six pack. You know. Again, if you want to, that's fine. If that's your goal. There's nothing wrong with it. But just remembering that, you know, that, that your humanness, remembering your humanness, letting go of the idea of perfection, which is, which is false and an illusion, right? It causes a lot of suffering, but it's false and it's an illusion. So just opening to the reality that human being human isn't about being perfect. You know that, you know, it's reminding yourself of it. And then I know it in theory. I know it for other people. You know it. <laughs> yeah. So, so you, you, but you forget it. Right. It's, it's not that you, you, you know it, and, but you don't in the moment you've forgotten it. It feels like a recipe for complacency. It feels like and I know you're going to rebut this, but let me yeah, just yeah, play if, out yeah, the string. Yes. I it feels to me, especially as it pertains 
to the yeah. belly. Okay. I can't believe we're dwelling this long on my nose. <laughs> like, no, it's, it's good. It's good. Uh, it's nice. Uh, that, you know, like I, if I hit the gym harder or if I hadn't eaten half of my son's plate of French fries, this wouldn't be this way. Right. Okay. So what, what you're doing in that moment is you're kind of falling into the illusion of complete self-control. It's actually... We aren't able to control things and have them be perfect. Now, if it really is important to you and also you feel healthier and stronger, absolutely go to the gym, do more sit-ups, right? If, if it's important to you and it's an important goal and if it's going to make you happy and it's going to help you relieve the suffering, you know, then, then you're, that, then you bring in the kindness. The kindness could go a couple ways depending on what you need. The kindness may be, you know, I, I just, I'd really feel so much better in my body. If I did more set sit ups, what can I do? Maybe I can make it easier for myself. Like like me, I hire my, I pay my yoga teacher to come to me, so I don't have to actually go to class. You know, if it's important to you and you think it'll help alleviate your suffering or make help you be well, you find creative ways. Maybe thinking about it differently. You know, what's not working in my routine now? How I can be different? That may be a way you go. It may be at some point that the way you go is well. I'm just going to accept it. Again, it's acceptance or change. Um, you know, it's a matter of wisdom, right? What's the right action to take? And I can't tell you what the, the wise thing to do. But the thing is that, that getting down on yourself and shaming yourself and like feeling bad about yourself for not having the six pack you want. Here's what happens, right? And, and maybe let me know if this is true. You think that in the moment and you feel bad about yourself. And then because you feel bad about yourself, boy, that glass of wine looks pretty nice. Or, you know, you want to comfort yourself to kind of counteract the feeling bad about yourself. And it actually ends up working against you. Yes. You know, shame, shame is not the best motivating force. Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> when you're feeling full of shame. I will agree. When you're full of shame, is it really a get up and go attitude? <laughs> no, but there's some like a dry eyed, sort of clear eyed analysis of deficiencies does help. Absolutely. That's the, that's the mindfulness. That's the clear scene. Constructive criticism is incredibly helpful. Kindness leads to constructive criticism. Judgment and shame leads to harsh, destructive criticism. We know for a fact that constructive criticism is more helpful than just saying you're, you're a fat loser. I mean, who, who does that help? You know, so again, the motivational power of it is... Because it hurts so much to call yourself a fat loser, you might, you, you have some motivation to try to avoid that self whip, you know, but it, at the end of the day, it's probably going to undermine your efforts because you're going to be so, feel so bad about yourself. You're going to have that extra glass of wine or that piece of chocolate cake, right? But thinking, well, you know, actually th- this, this will make me happy. I can see clearly. I could open to the pain of it. How can I constructively do something different to help myself achieve my goal? So the so the and, the, that, and the, that's the kindness. That's the kindness. Right. Kindness. So that's kindness the third is part. not. Yeah. Kindness. Sometimes remember, kindness can be yin or yang. <clears throat> kindness sometimes is you know it's time. I just have to accept it. But the, the kindness also might be the yang. Okay. What can we change to make things better? How can I help you? How can I help you reach your? How, you know, you'd say to yourself, how can I help myself reach my goals in an effective, realistic manner? And 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 warmth. And feelings of safety are actually going to be more supportive of you being able to reach your goals than just shame and, and lots of dumping lots of negative feelings on yourself. That is actually pulling the rug out beneath yourself doesn't ultimately help very much. 
So we got a little we got a little off track, but so it, um, it's important that you these three elements. We need to be mindful. Mindfulness is the core. We need to be aware. We need to remember our connectedness. We aren't alone. The feelings feelings of isolation is, again is one of the most psychologically debilitating states we can be in when we feel all alone. So you need to remember our connectedness in this struggle of human life and our connectedness in the mess. I'm not the only compassionate mess. We're, we're all messes. You're a mess. I'm a mess. Everyone's a mess. You know, that's just part of being human. And then the kindness and how, how might that kindness manifest? Sometimes the kindness is tough love. Sometimes the kindness is accepting love. Sometimes the kindness is encouragement. Sometimes the kindness is, you know, I just really need, I'm overworked. I need to cut back on my hours so I have more time to have work-life balance. You know, again, wisdom knows what the right thing to do is. But what's important is the friendliness, that intention, the kindness. The kindness is always aimed at helping, alleviating suffering, you know. And so you can actually just go through those steps. And um, it's it's a very easy thing to do. You can do in the moment. I, I, I teach, we teach something called the self-compassion break where you find language that works for you because people are really different. And once you get like phrases that work for you, it's almost like a mantra and you can just repeat those phrases um, sometimes you, some touch can just automatically set it off, mm. right? You can use the breath. There's lots of different ways. And um, so I think in our Mindful Self-Compassion Program, I think we have 37 different practices. You know, some work for some people, some don't. Um, but it, I think it's really worth spending the time to find out what works for you. I mean, I'm talking to you as a human being right now. If you struggle with this, you know, what works for you? What's what doorway actually opens that door to this loving, connected presence? To this, to this feeling of oneness, to this feeling of well-being, this feeling of um, care. Because you know, you you want that. We all want that. We're human beings, and so what doorways open that for you? And it's actually worth spending some time asking that question. There's no right or wrong answer, um, but once you start habitually entering that doorway. Become, that door becomes easier and easier to open. You know? I mean, it's incredibly intriguing and attractive and probably not going to land it right now, but I do think... Well, I, you, you already yeah. have a meditation practice. Yes. So it's just a matter of um, just kind of reminding yourself that it's not just about the awareness. Yep. It's also about the connectedness and it's about the care. It's, it's about the warmth. Yeah, I think I just need the little phrase that gets me in that door. Yes, exactly. And and what that phrase is, you know, only you know, really. No, but it's a great thing to think about and explore. There are two questions I want to ask before I go, both of which can be short if you want, um, it, but that's up to you. One of them is, is there something I should have asked but didn't? We covered a lot of ground, didn't we? I think, I think we're okay. I think we, we covered a broad range of it. Cool. So. Then the final question is, uh, I always do this kind of semi-facetious thing at the end, which is mm-hmm. ask people to uh, step into what I call the plug zone. Can you unabashedly plug, and I'm giving you permission here, yes. to plug everything, all the resources that are out there, yeah. where you are on social media, blah, 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 again. Yeah, yeah. So I, I can because, like I said, basically the last 10 years of my life with my colleague Chris Germer, we've been developing the technology. He's, Duke, right? no, he's actually connected with Harvard. Harvard, okay. He's in Boston. But um, we've been developing the technology of how to teach self-compassion. It's not just a good idea. We know the technology, the pedagogy of how to help people be more self-compassionate. And it's it was, you know, developed in the Mindful Self-Compassion Program. 
Uh, and it's taught all over the world. You could either go to the Center for MSC and find a teacher. You can take it online. But the cool thing is our workbook just came out in August. Uh, it's a, it was a number one bestseller. Um, but the workbook has it all in there. And it's only like, you know, 15 bucks or something. And actually it's, it guides you through in the sequence and it has helps you do all the practices safely it's a very accessible way to access these practices, the Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook. And, that, you know, a year ago, that wouldn't have been available. You would have just had to have someone in your area. You would have had to spend a lot more time and money to learn the practices. Um, and now it's just one click away. <laughs> cool. Yeah. And your website, again, is self-compassion? Self-compassion.org, yeah. And do you have a Twitter or Instagram or anything like that? I, I do have a Twitter. I, I have someone who tweets for me. I, I'm embarrassed to say I don't remember what, what the Twitter handle is. No, I think that's a badge of honor. <laughs> I can send it to you. Um, I also have Facebook. But probably the, the easiest way place to go is if you just Google self-compassion because I've got videos i've got a ted talk i've got you can take your own self-compassion you can test your own self-compassion level with the scale i've got uh, for those of you science nerds listening i've got the original pdfs of probably like well over a thousand articles research on self-compassion organized by category i put a lot of work into this to try to facilitate the research so if you want to know what's been done with self-compassion and body image issues, I've got a section on self-compassion and body image with all the original PDFs of the scientific articles. So if you're a scientist, that's a place to go. If you want to use the scale in research, if you want to take the scale, if I've got practices, guided meditations, written exercises, it's kind of I've tried to design it as a one-stop shopping, so to speak. So if anyone's interested, they can find that resource. You did a great job with this. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's my um, kind and friendly voice. At least I'm okay. directing it to you. Yes. I'll learn how to do it to myself at some point. Yes. Thank okay, you again. great. You're welcome. You're welcome. Big thanks to Kristen. Uh, I want to remind you, in just a few days, right here in this podcast feed, we're going to post a bonus meditation from Kristen called Self-Compassion Break. Let's get to voicemails now. Here's number one. Hi. I'd like to know if some people are just not cut out for meditation I've taken a mindfulness course, um, and I spent six months meditating virtually every day, at least 15 minutes, often longer. And in a few of my meditation practices early on, I had some satisfaction, and I was glad I did it. But for the last three months, it felt more like a burden to meditate every day. I never really felt any tangible benefits. And when I stopped meditating, uh, which I did about three months ago, I felt a great sense of relief that it's one less thing that I have to do in the day. So I just wonder whether I'm just not cut out for meditation. Thank you. I love this question. I'm really glad you asked it. And I totally get it, especially, you know, when you, when, anytime I take something off my to-do list, it, it feels good. So I get it. I don't know you and I don't know your mind, so I'm just going to take a guess, give you one thing to explore that might get you back on the wagon here, which is I, I think from, from my read on the science of habit formation and behavior change, a massive, massive factor is sort of the pleasure center or the pleasure centers of your brain. In other words, we don't really do things unless we're getting something out of it. And you said – 
you weren't you didn't feel like you were getting something out of it. So I want to orient you toward a moment that can happen after just a little bit of meditation, you know, a, f- a few weeks of a little bit of meditation daily-ish. There's a moment that can happen that if you're looking out for it, can really hammer home the benefits and lock in the habit, which is that you're going about your daily life and all of a sudden something happens and you're overcome, ambushed by a powerful emotion. In my case, it's usually anger. And sometimes after a little bit of meditation with the power of mindfulness, self-awareness on board, that moment might go a little differently than it's gone for us the rest of our lives. In other words, instead of being blindly carried away by your anger and eating a bunch of stuff you didn't want to eat or saying something that you regret or sending an email that damages uh, relationships, maybe even with your boss, maybe in that moment you notice the anger coming up and you watch it arise and pass. And instead of reacting blindly, you respond wisely. I've talked a million times on the show about respond, not react, because of all the meditation cliches, it is my favorite. And I think it is, in my experience, it's the one that really kicked in the quickest and was the insight and game changer that was the earliest and most prominent for me. And I've noticed in my little side hustle as a meditation evangelist over the last decade well, actually, it's really only been five years where I've been public about it. The five years before that, I was laboring on my book. Anyway, I've noticed in the five years that I've been out and about talking about this that when people come to me and talk about the first time that happens for them, that's when I see their eyes really light up. So it's not so much about what's the experience you're having on the cushion day to day because it's very easy for that to feel frustrating or stupid or stressful to get it in. It's really, it's, you know, as Sharon Salzberg, the great meditation teacher, has said, we don't meditate to get better at meditation. We, get, we meditate to get better at life. So uh, my gingerly offered suggestion to you is maybe try to go back to a little bit of meditation for a couple of weeks with the agenda to investigate off the cushion, are there moments when I'm less reactive? Because once that becomes clear to you, I think the benefits become radiantly clear. So is it possible that some people just aren't cut out for meditation? I guess. But I have, for lack of a better word, faith, meaning I don't really have evidence for this. I just have some core conviction that with the proper instruction and encouragement, actually, meditation can be incredibly useful for, if not everyone, the vast majority. So give that a shot. Hope that helps. Here's voicemail number two. Hi, Dan. My name's Amy. I live in Oregon, although I just recently moved here from Alaska. I've been meditating for um, over 30 years. Um, I'm 60 years old, and the reason I bring my age up is because I have a technical degree. That's one of the issues. Um, I grew up prior to uh, Title IX being um implemented and prior to uh, abortion rights. And when I was going to college, getting my technical degree, I got I went to a job fair where I had um, a man that worked for a large corporation tell me they didn't hire women because they tended to quit and get pregnant and quit. And um, so I worked for 25, 30 years in my profession, and I kind of got fed up with the male domination of the profession, I think, is kind of what happened. But 
here, here's what I, I recently, recently was listening to an episode of your podcast. It was with Dolly Chu, and I suddenly realized that I have quit. Not only did I leave my profession and start my own business, I quit listening to any music um, that men produce other than, say, like Punch Brothers or Chris Tile. Um, I quit reading any literature by men other than Sean Acor. He's one I have read, but or, or, uh, fiction, I tend not to read any male fiction. Um, I don't watch a lot of movies that are man-based. I don't, you're, I think the only podcast I listen to that is a man. <laughs> and it, it, I could go on. I, you know, like friends on Facebook. I have very few male friends on Facebook, you know, and so on. So anyway, when I listened to the Dolly Chu episode, I realized what I'm doing is practicing aversion. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experience with aversion or um, how you see aversive behavior in society, because I, I realize also that I think that's a lot of the issues going on in society right now. There's a lot of aversion to people with different ideas, and frankly, that's, I think, part of what I'm experiencing. So anyway, that's my question. Thank you. Bye. Yeah, I wanted to take this question, um, but I wanted to be careful about it because I, uh, you know, I'm the child of a woman who navigated uh, a male-dominated academic medicine field, and I'm also married to a woman who is currently doing the same thing. And so I, I, re- I recognize that uh, mansplaining is probably not super helpful in this context. Uh, to, if I go on about how not all men are sexist and blah, 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 that's probably not going to be helpful since you already know that. So... And, and yet, uh, I think there's something super important in your question. And in some ways, embedded is in the question is the answer, at least a part of it. The fact that you're noticing that there's a version at play here is, I think, the key insight. And once you know, I think I think the the pro- one of the propositions of mindfulness is that. The antidote to a lot of our suffering is simply seeing it clearly. And this seems like it could potentially be a rich field of practice for you to know now that it's on your radar to notice when aversion is arising in the face of maleness. And by the way, just not that I mean, just to state the blazingly obvious, you come across this aversion, honestly, and that your experience sounds incredibly painful. And uh, it sounds like you're creating pain for yourself still in in ways uh, that you're interested in addressing. And so I I guess I would sort of carefully suggest that maybe this is just an area where you could bring your meditation practice to bear and play with it and see what – try to notice what kind of reactions are coming up for you when you're around men or listening to men through media – and try to figure out, oh, oh, am I avoiding this reflexively and blindly? Or or maybe is there – am I missing out on something because of – because I'm, I'm just sort of habitually avoiding this stuff and, and, and maybe I, I can get over it? Or maybe not. Um, I, I don't know. I just think it, it might be an interesting thing to, to play with. You asked also about how I experience aversion in the world and I experience a ton of it, self-directed. Uh, a lot of the stuff we're talking about with Kristen this week, um, I would say a lot of my aversion is self-directed, but 
you know, then there are just moments where, um, you know, I see it come up in my close relationships. I think anybody who's married, um, there are moments where your spouse, you know, just gets on your nerves. And this is where, for me, meditation has just been really useful just to notice, oh, she's doing, Bianca's doing something right now that's just driving me crazy, even though there's no real reason why it should be driving me crazy. She's just living her life. And and yet I'm something's triggering. It's triggering something in me. And th- that's I mean, this is a, a like an incredibly marriage enhancing practice just to catch it before I say or do something stupid. That just it lowers the amount of conflict in the relationship, because in those moments when I snap at her for who knows whatever she's she's doing something small and for some reason i haven't gotten enough sleep and i'm being irritable and i snap at her then i'm just doubly annoyed i'm annoyed at her for the original quote unquote sin although it's almost always something harmless and then i'm really mad at myself and then she's also mad at me and it's just a mess so i've just found that being having this inner telescope that allows me to see oh yeah there's a storm brewing here Showing, usually shows up in my body somewhere. My chest is starts to rumble or my stomach is bubbling or gurgling or my ears are turning red, my jaws uh, clenching. Oh, yeah, these are uh, my body's sending me some signals here that I'm getting annoyed. Well, there are any number of things I can do that are much more constructive, like go to the other room for a second or think about something different or change the subject or who knows. So... Yeah, that's that's a word salad for you, but uh, ho- hopefully it's useful. And I think it's a you know insightful of you to to come to this point where you got to ask this question. So thank you for that. While I'm saying thank you, I just want to thank everybody who helps put this show together, and there are a lot of them: Ryan Kessler, Samuel Johns, Grace Livingston, Lauren Hartzog, Tiffany Omahundro. Big thanks to all of you. Really appreciate that. And just uh, to everybody who listens. We really appreciate the listen, uh, your listening. And if you like this episode or any other episode, sharing it either with a friend or a bunch of people via social media, that helps us grow our audience, and, and we love that. Be on the lookout for Kristen Neff's uh, bonus meditation in your feed in a couple days, and then we'll be back with a brand-new episode next Wednesday. See ya. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. 
For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.